Please be seated. If you will, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6 as we continue in our study of this gospel from the one that Jesus loved, the Apostle John. Text this morning will be, again, our reading in verse 1, reading through verse 15. So we break up this chapter, the longest chapter in all of the New Testament. And as you're turning there, let me pray for us that God would bless us in this time. Father, as we come, we give you praise that you are worthy to receive, but we also now uh, give ourselves, our minds, our hearts, our ears, our lives to your word by asking that your spirit would do what you have promised, would do a work within us, that we might have ears to hear what you have said through your servant John and your son Jesus that we would have minds to comprehend, that we would have hearts to receive, that together they would shape our lives and that we would have lives that are formed by the very word that you have given. We pray to you, Lord, for our own efforts are inadequate, and yet the power of your spirit and the promise of your word is at work even now. May we experience it. May the evidence of that be clear, and may you have the joy in us, even as we find our joy in you. We pray all this in Christ, and for his name's sake, amen. John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And they had eaten their fill. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The word of our God. 
May he bless us through it this morning. In the early days of television, one of the shows that was widely watched was called Kids Say the Darndest Things. The host, a comedian and an expert interviewer named Art Linkletter, would gather children around him and see what they had to offer. In fact, one of his primary techniques was to begin the day by asking these children, now, what did your parents tell you not to talk about today? So that they, being very polite, would gush out with the very things that they were lectured to on the drive to the studio to watch to the embarrassment of their families. But one of the things that became obvious in that show is that sometimes in the midst of the humor, there is also great wisdom that we are able to glean from children. And while I was reading this week a list of wisdom tidbits from children, not from that television show, it just reminded me that sometimes the simplest things are the most beneficial. So here are some of the points for you to consider to apply to your life from children. The first one was from a young girl, Naomi, age 13, who said this, if you want a kitten, start out by asking for a horse. <laughs> I want her negotiating for my future deals. Patrick, age 10, apparently from bad experience, offered this, never trust your dog to watch your food. Eileen, age eight, who was clearly not a Presbyterian, says this, never try to baptize your cat. <laughs> See, it wouldn't be so bad if she was Presbyterian, you know, so just turn the hose on and you're set. But anyway. Um, Joel, age 10, had gained wisdom from his experience, apparently, when he declared this, never pick on your older sister while she's holding a baseball bat. <laughs> And the greatest sage of all may have been a young man named Michael who offered insights into family dynamics relating to his parents, both his mother and his father. First, with his father, he declared this, when your dad is mad and asks you, do I look stupid? Never answer him. <laughs> and when it comes to his mother, he says this, never tell your mom that her diet is not working. <laughs> We find treasure in these wisdoms. In fact, Proverbs 8.11 tells us that wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. So wisdom is practical. Wisdom enables us to live and be strong. But what about those situations where wisdom is not enough? When you're running on empty, or you're in over your head, and you recognize that there is no way over and there is no way around whatever problem is facing you. You, in your assessment, putting all of your faculties and wisdom together, you've come to recognize that whatever you have is insufficient to meet the challenge because we lack the practical know-how or the financial resources or the emotional energy. Some of you are probably in circumstances like that right now. And all of us at one time or another will face those things that seem bigger than us and 
demand of us what we can't possibly give? How is it that we are to respond when we are in those circumstances, whether they are threatening to us or whether they are just frustrating to us? The passage that we have before us this morning speaks of just such occasions, and it points us to the sufficiency of God's power and provision in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to look at it first in in three stages, three beginning with S. The first is the situation, then we're going to look at stretching, and then we will look at the solution. Now, I'll confess, in the first service, I didn't have all three S's. I worked all week to find an S for the second point. Couldn't do it because the word was testing. Then after the first service, Valerie Lunt came up and said, it should have been stretching. So the second point and the alliteration is brought to you courtesy of Valerie Lunt this morning. But as we do do the outline of this, we're going to look at what is taking place so that all of us are on the same page, understanding the circumstance that uh, is facing not only the disciples, but the, the crowds that were there. And then we'll go back and we will glean some of the practical implications that we need to consider and apply into our own lives. And so we begin with the situation. And even as we begin that, probably need to note this is, interestingly enough, this is the only one of the miracles of Jesus that is recorded by all four of the gospel writers. Now, each of them, for their own reasons and God's prompting, has chosen to record different miracles. Some of them uh, double up and some of them have recorded certain things that the others didn't choose to record for whatever their purposes. But for whatever the reason that God had in his mind that he decided that this was the miracle that all of them would write about, that we would have four different accounts from four different perspectives to speak to us. It doesn't make us make this one more important, but it does seem to show us that there is something that is significant in that. And so we begin with the situation, which we find in verses one through five. And John here begins with a description of their problem. Interestingly enough, it's a problem that was born out of the success of Jesus's ministry. It's not told us here in John, but we do find that in the, the other, other gospels. Business was so good that we are told that Jesus and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. And so they had decided to escape the hustle and bustle to recharge their batteries. In addition to the fact that they were so busy, we know some other things as we look at the context because apparently a fair amount of time has elapsed between the end of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six. And looking at the other gospels, we see that after chapter five, Jesus had sent all the disciples out on their own short-term missions, and they had just gotten back and they were reporting about the, the mission experiences that they had. And we're also told in the other gospels that Jesus had just received word that his cousin, his forerunner, his friend, John the Baptist had been executed and having been beheaded. So you can understand how Jesus, who had come to be like us, was in his flesh, was exhausted. He had just been working and and blessing people, hit also by, you know, people coming back, the disciples and the short-term mission, all of them feeling the the sting and the energy that sucked out of you uh, through the tragic death of someone that they love. No wonder they wanted to go and to get away and to charge their batteries. But they didn't have the opportunity. Because as we see in our text, the crowds followed him. Some of them even anticipated. They saw where he was going. They guessed where he was going. They went, word spread. And even when they arrived on the other side of the sea, 
People were already there waiting for him, and the crowds continued to pour in. We're told in here that it's the Passover is at hand, meaning it's in the days leading up to the Passover. And that indicates that people were coming from all over into this area, people to celebrate the Passover. They were going to be in Jerusalem, which is kind of the, the, the high place. That's where you go, be like Times Square on New Year's Eve for, for Jerusalem. And so people were coming from all over, but a few of them came a few days early. And they thought, well, we have time to kill. Let's go listen or experience that Jesus guy we've been hearing about. We've been hearing about the miracles. Maybe we'll see one done. That would be entertaining. Or maybe there's a need in our lives. And so if we get near enough, maybe he'll do a, a miracle in our life or in our family. But the, even more people than normal were coming into town and they were flooding out into the countryside to the very place where Jesus was trying to escape and get some R&R. And the crowds were incredible in size. This passage is often referred to as the feeding of the 5,000. But one of the things that we need to recognize is that that title, which comes from within the text, is actually a reflection of the patriarchal culture that they were living in. In other words, John and the other uh, writers of the Gospels were simply reporting the way people would want to read it. And so they were reporting not every individual who was present, but the heads of households. And so when you look later on, I think it's in verse 10, that says, and the men sat down. That means, indicates the, the heads of the households in that day. They sat down, their families sat down. And Bible scholars tell us that it's not 5,000 that were present, but quite likely somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people were present by the time they began ministering and finding uh, dinner time came around. And that's a number that in one sense almost is unfathomable. I was thinking about that this week and what would that compare to? I first began to wonder what would be the numbers that gather for the grand illumination. Apparently that's 50,000, so that was a, blew my wonderful illustration that I planned on using. But then again, some of you might have noticed there's some basketball being played right now. The NCAA tournament is on March Madness. And I started thinking about the number of 20,000. Some of you uh, may be uh, um, aware that in Kentucky, the state's just nuts about basketball. Fortunately, those of us from Tennessee realize they can't play football, but that's a whole other issue. Um, but, to which now David Shulker is going to leave and go to another church after I said that. But anyway, uh, so, <laughs> so. But their arena, Rupp Arena, is the largest indoor arena, not just for basketball, but the largest indoor arena in the United States, and it seats 23,000 people, roughly the same number of people that were gathered to listen to Jesus there that day. If you want to go more local, it would be like if you were to go over to Kaplan Arena and pretend it's a rivalry game. The place is packed out. And then let them all go home and then fill it up again then send them all home, and then fill it up again. It's about three times a packed capacity of Kaplan Arena. We're all gathered in that place at that time. And then Jesus, in order to test the stretching of his disciples that we find in verses 5 through 9, looks up, sees all these people, and we're told by John, ask Philip a question. So where are we going to get food to feed all of these people? Now, Philip is the one that was specifically singled out. The other gospels say that there was a conversation that was taking place. And Philip was probably asking a question that maybe has popped in your mind. No question that Philip probably asked that. It was, why are you picking on me? Why are you asking me? And the answer is 
quite likely because Philip was a hometown boy. He was from Bethsaida, which is in that same area. And so it would make the most sense. He'd know the good places to eat. He would know if there was a 7-Eleven hidden behind some neighborhood that nobody else knew about that they might be able to go to and grab something and, and give something for people to eat. And yet Philip said, I have no idea where we can get anything to eat. And then he began, apparently he was kind of a accountant type of person. It would take eight months wages just to give everybody a donut, just something simple to eat. Certainly not enough to fill them. And it just, I mean, just the whole thing is absurd. And the other disciples apparently agreed because as the other gospels record, they're all in conversation. And the solution that some of them said was, send them all away. We didn't invite them anyway. This is not our problem. Let them fend for themselves. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. He put it on them. About this time, Andrew, Peter's brother, you can almost imagine him kind of sheepishly interjecting into this conversation. All the other disciples are grumbling, some of them certainly stronger personalities. And he just says, you know, I noticed some kid over there and he's got, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, five loaves and two pickled fish. You know, but what, well, what's that for? crowd of this size. I mean, fact is, that wouldn't have even fed all of the disciples. We assume the kid was an Eagle Scout because he's the only one in the whole place that's prepared with anything. He came to eat. Nobody else thought about it at all. They all just traveled, had no, stayed all day, had nothing uh, to eat, but the Eagle Scout was prepared. And so Philip offers that possible suggestion. But Jesus was probably somewhat amused I don't want to think he's disappointed, I don't know, but in this, because we're told he asked the question not to get an, an answer, or at least not the answer that we would expect that he was wanting. I mean, if you ask where are we going to get the food, we assume he wants to know where are we going to get the food. But we're told that Jesus asked, not because he needed an answer to that, because he already knew what he was going to do. He was testing his disciples. Now, some people might object and say, I thought God never tested us. No, God never tempts us. But just like any good teacher, any good coach, any good instructor, not only does he pour into them information, but he puts them in situations where the information they have can be borne out, can, can prove, and so they can be stretched and to not only grow, but demonstrate the growth that they have already experienced. And that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples here. And while Andrew offers this sheepish, suggestion. Jesus responds in a way that they didn't understand, expect. Jesus says, bring it to me. It's not in John, but it's in the other Gospels. So now we have the situation, we see the stretching, and now we see the solution, which is in verses 10 through 14. And the solution is a magnificent and miraculous display of God's power and his provision through the person of Jesus Christ. After telling the disciples to bring me what they had, he tells them, have the people sit down. And then we're told in verse 11 that Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, 
He distributed, he broke them, he distributed them to those who were seated, and quite likely he distributed them through uh, the apostles. So as there were 12 of them, we're told later, a collection of 12 baskets, so he would break the bread, as we'll do here in a little while, and then put it in a basket, break the bread, put it in the basket, and then sent them all to go feed 20-some thousand people with five loaves and two pickled fish. And then in verse 12, we're told this. And when the people had eaten their fill, not just snack, okay, the hunger pains had gone away, they were full. Then he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing is lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. An incredible display of God's power through Christ and his practical provision through the person of Jesus Christ. But the question is, what are we to take from this? What is it that we are able to glean? What are some practical things that we need to understand? I think first is this we need to understand, that this story is telling us that God has compassion about the concerns that concern the people in this world. And that's the reason for which he sent Jesus in the first place. The people were gathered, and they represent the people that are all over the world who are also hungering and thirsting. And we're told that, again, not in John, but by the other gospel writers, that Jesus had compassion on them, which is why he fed them and provided for them. The word compassion is important for us to understand. We see it demonstrated in action in this that John records, and the word itself is recorded by the other writers. But the word compassion literally means to feel what they were feeling or to identify with. And we need to associate that word with Jesus Christ because by his very nature, he has identified with us. He who is nature, God, became like us, identified with us, felt everything that we feel, experienced what we were feeling, And he also experienced the compassion in the way that we use it, not only by his own personal experience, but he was able to identify with circumstances that other people were in, and he felt, and that compelled him to act. He had compassion. And the reason that's important is because many of us as believers wrestle at times with the question of, how does God really feel about me? I mean, it's easy to see Jesus came, he had a job to do, he's the shepherd. So he came in, became like us, because that's how he had to work, punched in the time clock, goes about his business, lived his life, healed people, provided for people, died, rose again, secured our salvation, and he's cared for our needs in that way. But how does he really feel? Compassion says he identifies with you. He didn't just know that you had need and he took care of it. He felt with you. He felt for you. He loves you. We see displayed here what the prophet Zephaniah described as characteristic of God toward his people by declaring, the Lord your God who is mighty to save, the Lord your God who is with you takes great delight in you. In fact, he rejoices over you with singing. Can you imagine that? See, we've gathered here today to offer up songs that God is worthy to receive, talking of his glory, his holiness, celebrating what he's done. And while we're doing that, what we've been told 
is that God in heaven, not only is he receiving those songs that we offer to him, but he's singing a love song tune about you, who he knows, who he loves. He has compassion on the people of the world. He feels, he identifies, he came, and he has acted for them because, again, the other writers tell us, because he looks at people as sheep without a shepherd, and he wants to provide for them. Moved to this, we also see that God has concerns for the, the things that concern people in this world because Jesus acted in a practical way. He met the practical needs that these people had. And it tells us that we who are part of Christ, Christ came to engage in a holistic mission, which is not just to save as many as he can. And meanwhile, you know, what's physical doesn't matter. He demonstrates that he cares about us wholly spiritual and physical alike by the fact that he fed people who had no ability to feed themselves. And he continues to have that compassion. And it's important for us to understand because in this world that we live in, at least according to world hunger, there's 21,000 people who die daily of hunger and hunger-related issues. And of those 21,000, children are the most affected to the point of 3.1 million children dying of starvation every single year. And of those children that die, 45% of them are under the age of five because these people who are like sheep without a shepherd and no one to feed them have no tangible need, no way of providing for their needs. And we who have been blessed by Christ, seeing his example, his heart that engages people are called and are commissioned and sent to go and to meet those needs. And yet we also need to recognize in a holistic mission that Jesus also said, what good is it if you have the whole world and yet you forfeit your own soul? And so that while it is important and we are called to engage the tangible needs of the world, the ultimate mission of the church is not simply to meet those needs, but to make disciples from people from every nation. Because not only are they starving physically, but even more so they are starving spiritually because they do not have access to the bread. God is sending his people out to minister to them, which is the second thing that we need to recognize is not only is God care, but he commissions his people. Jesus, by his demonstration and what he tells his disciples to do is to go and to minister to them. Later on in John, John 21, and as I started thinking in the first service, I was going to say we'll see in a few weeks, but it'd be more like maybe a hundred or so weeks, so a couple years before we get there, but... Um, Jesus declares this, just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so we need to ask this question, what does it mean that the Father sent Jesus? And how did he send Jesus? Well, he sent Jesus personally, physically, and didn't just write a check, who addressed both tangible needs of people as well as the spiritual needs by giving himself to them. And we therefore are sent in the same way, in the same holistic mission, to minister to those who have needs. But the purpose of going is to make the disciples, and while we're meeting the needs, it's for the purpose of engaging the heart, demonstrating what God is really like, and that those whose hearts are open by seeing God at work through his people will have life and not just food. We need to look at this passage and realize that God is calling us to a holistic mission. And so the idea of just sending missionaries out who are going to proclaim the world, to the world that Jesus is the hope, but not give a hoot about their physical needs is not consistent with the living and true God. But at the same time, we need to recognize that we can send people out to take care of all sorts of need. But if they are not proclaiming Christ, all of it is ultimately in vain. 
because the people will live a little while longer and then experience the pains of alienation from God and the punishments of hell. But God cares, and there's a holistic mission that he commissions us onto. And so not only are there people that are dying, but we need to consider the people who are in need of the spiritual bread as well. The Joshua Project tells us that out of the 16,578 people groups in the world, there are 6,738 that, that are still without any hope of hearing the gospel. This is not people who just aren't showing up to church. This is people living in parts of the world where the gospel doesn't exist. There is no church. There are no Christians. There is no scripture that they would be able to even hear about the hope that they can have in Jesus Christ. And that number is large, and yet we need to realize we're not talking about numbers, we're talking about people. In fact, of those 6,700 plus people groups, they represent 3.1 billion people, 42% of the world population that has no opportunity to even hear the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as a side note, because it's overwhelming, the people groups fall into certain blocks. If you want a simple way to understand and to know what those people groups are as you pray for them, it's as easy as your thumb. In fact, that's the answer. Uh, The acronym for your thumb tells you about the five largest people groups that are without the gospel. T, tribals. H, the Hindus. U, for the unreached Chinese. M for the Muslims, B for the Buddhists. That's the five largest blocks of people groups. And if you just look at your thumb and offer prayers for people on those people groups, you are participating in God's mission. It's not exhaustive, but it is something. We would engage and ask for the Lord to be at work through them because he is commissioning us to be engaged for this work. And yet being commissioned to do what God cares about is frankly, quite a daunting task, isn't it? I mean, we don't like to say it, but it's kind of overwhelming. Especially when you kind of look about what's going on in my life right now. It's hard enough to manage my life, and I've got my own challenges, and while I want all of that to take place, and I want to participate in that, I'm having a difficult time enough just dealing with the things that are right in front of me, much less taking care of all of these We also need to recognize that from this passage, we realize this, we're told this, that with God, little is much. I mean, you ask yourself, why did Jesus ask for the food? Why did he ask what were the resources that were available? I mean, Jesus is the one who spoke all of creation into beginning. He spoke in the entirety of the earth and everything in the earth and everything under the earth and everything everywhere, everything. He brought everything simply by speaking it. And the scripture tells us it was ex nihilo, meaning from nothing. He doesn't need any resources. Had Jesus spoken, he could have provided Chick-fil-A for everyone, even on Sunday, because clearly he's not opposed to doing things on the Sabbath day and could have had Drop down with little parachutes, jugs of sweet iced tea. Everybody would have had their fill. It would have been very simple. So why is Jesus asking his disciples to go find something and then telling him to bring them five loaves of barley and two probably pickled little fish? Because he's wanting his disciples. Then 
and those of us who are his disciples now to understand that with God, little is much. See, we need to understand this. It's even significant that we're told that they were barley loaves. It tells us this kid, however old he was, was poor because barley was the cheapest of all of the grains. It was the offering of the poor. People who could afford it, who lived in decent suburban communities, they would have had wheat. Barley indicates this is nothing. It's insignificant. It is minimal. And yet Jesus says, bring it to me, because in his hands, he will do much, even with little. Now, we need to understand that and not just proclaim that to be true. We need to embrace that reality. Because one of the things that I see in my life and see in the life of many of the other people is that sometimes it's more difficult for us to give to God our, what we lack than it is to give to him what we have. Think about it for a moment. If there's somebody who is eloquent and charismatic, and they might volunteer and say, God, use my gifts, and, and they might even recognize that God has given them the gifts, use them as you will. They never hesitate to sign up. Somebody with administrative abilities can organize and manage all sorts of things. They can sign up and they can offer their gifts, their talents, their strengths. Somebody who's creative, those things are offered to God. And many of you are offering your talents and your gifts to God in, in wonderful ways. And I don't want to minimize that in any way. But what Jesus is showing us here is not the strengths, but what happens when we don't have the resources and we don't have strengths. And many of us are kind of like Philip and saying, this is all I have. And in Philip's case, that's not even mine. The disciples brought nothing. The only one that brought anything was this poor kid. And what he had was insignificant, maybe would have been sufficient for him that day. And many of us need to understand that we miss out on some of the blessings that God would provide in our lives, opportunities to be stretched and to grow, because we think that what we are, have to give is too insignificant, insufficient, to make any difference whatsoever. And we want to wait until we have excess, till we have great things to give. In the meantime, whether it's a real humility or a false humility, we just kind of hold on to what we have when we have very little. And Jesus says, bring me what you have that is little. In other words, bring me your insignificance, bring me your weakness, bring me your nothing if that's all you have. Until we understand that comparatively that's all we have anyway, and we hold back from God, whether it's for our own greed or misplaced humility, and we lack the participation in what God is doing and seeing what God will do in us and through us and through what we bring to him. Now this has stewardship implications for us. We need to recognize first that God never asks us to bring us, bring him, to give him what we don't have. Even when he says, bring me your nothing, that's what you have. Bring me your nothing, bring me your least. Some of you have much. But the principle we see over and over again in scripture, in any way in which we are giving to God, is on the basis of bring me not what you don't have, bring me what you do have. It's borne out in the scriptures over and over again in the concept of the tithe, and I don't have a lot of time to go into that, but basically that's saying if you have a lot, it's a percentage if you don't. You know. And the whole point of the tithe is not because God has need and this is his flat tax. 
gift for us. It's a week by week or month by month, however it is that we gauge uh, our income, by which we are able to evaluate our own hearts and saying, am I trusting in the one who provides or am I trusting in the provision? And God says, bring me what you have. And in the case of the tithe, that's a stewardship issue. It's just a 10%. For some, that's much. For some, that's very little. But the tithe principle also applies to our time and the town. everything that we have belongs to God. And so there's a stewardship of all of these resources. And God says, bring me, be faithful with these things, even if you consider it to be insignificant and watch what I will do. In fact, he takes those insignificant resources, whether they are talents or whether they are treasures, and then he bears fruit through them. And they are the very things, the very resources by which those people who are starving and those people who are starving for the gospel will be fed to the full, to overflowing through Jesus Christ. But the question is, are we willing to bring to Jesus not only our talents and our treasures, are we willing to bring him our nothing and see what God is going to do? And finally, we need to recognize this, that we also see this passage reminding us that we receive Jesus for who he is and not for what he gives. Where do I see that? Well, in verse 15, we're told that Jesus, the people amazed at this miracle, Jesus perceived that they were about to take him by force to make him king. That just to me is a bizarre scene. I mean, you know, we just go through a political cycle where people would kill, be violent in order to get power, and these are people that are going to do violence in order to give him power, and he doesn't want it. It's all the more perplexing when we realize he's the king of kings who came in order to reign over the entire world, and the people recognize that are going to give him the position, and he says, no thanks, and he walks away and, and hides from them. But the reason is he understood the heart of the people, and this is an important passage for us to understand, and I wish I had the time to just focus on this entirely, maybe some other time, because this shoots to death the whole idea that this is God's economic plan for your retirement. Give to God and he'll make you wealthy. You know, you keep on giving, you'll have that Rolls Royce in no time. Really? How many of the disciples ended up rich? None. But they were enriched with the power of God that was within them. We don't even know what happened to this kid. So he may have become rich, rags the riches. But if he was, it wasn't important to God, which you think it would be if that's what he was trying to say in this passage, wouldn't it? So people who have these flashy TV shows and will tell you that this is the way that the kingdom economy works is to just keep give, 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 and then you will have much more. That's not what this passage is saying by the very fact that nobody seems to have been rich, but all who are aware and who believed were enriched. But Jesus is recognizing that these people liked him for what he was giving and not for who he was. And he was unwilling to become the mascot for their lifestyle. He was unwilling to be their figurehead king. He came to be the king for reality. And so he went away until people had an opportunity to see who he really was and what the real treasure was that he was offering. And they believed in him after his resurrection. And they knew that he had paid for our sin and paid for our life. We come to Jesus for who he 